It's midnight and I'm stood on a dirt track surrounded by coastal lagoons in southeast France. My bed is calling me, but I've been tempted out of my camper and into the night. There's a sea of glistening stars above me, but a new moon means I've lost the lunar spotlight that would normally help me navigate. The landscape has been painted black. I can't see them, but those weird and wonderful sounds around me in the background are hundreds of roosting flamingos, one of the icons of the Camargue, and a beneficiary to the restoration of these Mediterranean wetlands. It's worth missing out on a bit of shut-eye to be surrounded by their calls. I am very excited to try and lay eyes on them in the morning. I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is Tour de Valor. We've taken a couple of weeks to slowly travel the length of France. And being the closest continental country to the UK, my home, it's hard not to draw a few comparisons whilst travelling along the roads. Firstly, there seems to be kestrels everywhere here. Each kilometre of highway seems to bring up a new territory. The beating wings of these little falcons working overtime, allowing them a few stationary moments whilst they pinpoint their next meal below. Forgive the cliché, but when I were a lad... This is how I remember our motorways to be. Kestrels hunting along the rough verges is a sight I sorely miss. Equally, there doesn't seem to be any litter piling up on French roadside verges. It's almost as if people aren't just throwing their rubbish straight out of their car windows here. Weird. As we reach the Camargue, there's a real sense of excitement as wildlife sightings kick up a notch. Cattle, little and great egrets are flying overhead. Chetty's warblers are shouting at me from secretive spots in the reeds joined by the anthem of Mediterranean tree frogs singing from the ditches. I even get a rare glimpse of a pair of water rail, just 10 metres from the road, which are usually just out of sight, and the blur of a weasel sprinting across the road waving a small but enthusiastic flag for Team Mammal. It feels like anything can happen here. One thing's for sure, where there's water, there's life. I've come to this part of France to meet the team from Tour de Valla, an estate on the Camargue dedicated to the restoration of these Mediterranean wetlands. Bonjour, Anad. Welcome. How are you? Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. This place is amazing. We're by the grand old farmhouse at the centre of 2,500 hectares of salt marsh, wetland, lagoon and scrubland. Here, the mighty Rhone River is on the last leg of its journey having brought fresh water all the way from the Alps to the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Arnaud Bechet is one of the researchers here. After studying ecology and evolution from the nearby University of Montpellier, he carried out his PhD in Quebec, studying snow geese. And then because of uh, my expertise in population dynamics, I got this position at Tour du Valla to um, take over um, a long-term study on the Greater Flamingo, which was initiated in the 70s um, by Alan Johnson. Alan was originally from the UK, but moved to the Camargue in the early 1960s. Saving the dwindling population of Greater Flamingo here became Alan's life's work. One of the main causes of decline appeared to be the erosion of the islands in which they used to nest. Alan and his team managed to entice the flamingos to man-made islands using artificial nest mounds, and their numbers began to rebound. Since 1977, a long-term ringing project helps the team at Tour du Valla monitor the population work that Arnaud now leads today. 
we realized that they were dispersing a lot between the different breeding sites in the Mediterranean. They have they had a particular population dynamics with some sedentary birds, some migratory ones that were migrating every year across the Mediterranean to North Africa. And we have learned a lot of uh, on these birds through this research program. Flamingos is a really a flagship species for our institute, but also for the conservation of uh, Mediterranean wetlands. Flamingos have a very important job on their hands then. These charismatic ambassadors draw in much needed attention to the wealth and health of habitats on the Camargue. Humans have, of course, had their own influence here too, battling to control levels of salt and water in the landscape for a variety of different reasons. Also, we have a delta which has been managed for now 150 years with uh, several compartments and one very saline compartment for the production of salt and another more agricultural compartment where salt water has to be removed and fresh water has to be brought for crop production. The history of the estate is a fascinating one, bought by legendary Swiss conservationist Luke Hoffman in the 1950s. A passionate ornithologist, he started to study birds at Tour de Valais, but seemingly ahead of his time, his focus soon switched beyond the perimeters of the land he had so recently acquired. Luke Hoffman, I think, early realized that water birds from the Camargue were connected to other wetlands in the Mediterranean. He also saw the, the threats that were threatening other wetlands in the Mediterranean. So he was involved in the preservation and the conservation of Doniana in, in the south of Spain, in Prespalec, in Greece. And he was also involved in, in, in the implementation of the Ramsar Convention, uh, which is the convention dedicated to the conservation of wetlands worldwide. A true pioneer for wetlands across the globe. And just like Luke, Tour de Valle as an organisation now thinks much bigger than its immediate surroundings. The goal here is to better understand the natural processes at play and to demonstrate restoration efforts that work. The team at Tour de Valle are well respected around the globe and their emphasis on sound science empowers their advocacy work and allows them to advise other practitioners. If rewilding is to work at scale, we need restoration teams to always be thinking beyond their own patch. Globally, Wetlands have been disappearing at an alarming rate, thanks to our constant attempts to control water. Here in France, 50% of wetlands disappeared between the three decades, from 1960 to 1990. After a catastrophic flooding event in the mid-19th century, the Rhone River was shackled with embankments and dikes. A fortress of flood defences to ensure the Rhone was now controlled, stifling its interaction with the delta beyond. Since then, Further manipulation of water has taken place to assist with agriculture. So that all the natural dynamics process of sedimentation, erosion, all this was lost toward a more um, intensively managed system where the, all the fresh water which is brought into the delta is brought by artificial pumping, mostly for the production of rice. Intensive agricultural systems not only attempt to control water for increased production, but the use of herbicides and pesticides can really harm natural systems and the life that lives there. But we do have to eat. So what's great to hear is that Tortavala has a close relationship with some of the local producers and they're working together for the greater good. There are a lot of farmers that are now uh, moving to organic agriculture, uh, organic rice production, 
they are trying to change their, their practice. We assist them to change their practice and to be more uh, uh, biodiversity friendly in their practice. Something that had ever really crossed my mind was that flamingos could be considered a nuisance. What could these fancy birds ever do wrong? They're so chic and sophisticated. Why they're not all wearing top hats, I just don't know. But if you're a freshly planted rice seed, these birds are your nemesis. And as a result, flamingos and rice farmers have been in conflict for decades. Enter science. Because of science, we were able to show and to demonstrate that flamingos were preferring the rice fields that were large and without any hedges because they were frightened by the closed areas. So we encourage farmers to replant hedges around their, their fields. Those farmers that have done that, uh, now they can tell that they, they have less damage and it's a kind of success story. Planting hedges might not seem like a large rewilding action, but harmonious living with wildlife is such an important feature in an increasingly busy world. So often, agriculture and nature are pitted against one another. Nature must be controlled to produce food, and farming is always detrimental to nature. But farming is an integral part of our society, and so we must find ways to blur the lines between the two, so that nature-friendly farming can support larger, core rewilding areas. We also own a herd of 300 cattle, and we sell the meat. We also sell the, some, a few breeding horse, and we sell some uh, rice that we produce over 20 hectares. And we try to be uh, exemplary in, in the way we produce uh, rice. Also, it's a way to manage habitats because the bulls, they, they will graze important <laughs> habitats for um, grassland birds, for instance. Where food is produced in a way that doesn't just limit its impact on nature, but actually assists its recovery, it usually sells at a premium, and that extra money can then get channelled back into further restoration work. It just needs a jazzy marketing campaign for people to buy into. Perhaps we'll see flamingo-friendly farm food in stores soon. Although I wonder what that sounds like in French. Aliments de la ferme adaptés au flamant rose. Hmm, maybe not. Perhaps I'd better leave it to the French to come up with something better. Another threat to the wider Camargue ecosystem has been wildfowling, the shooting of ducks and geese in the winter. It doesn't necessarily sound like the issue is the numbers of birds being killed, but the equipment used. Lead has by far been the most commonly used ammunition in shotguns up till now, which is incredibly toxic to wildlife. However, a landmark EU-wide ban has just come into play in February this year, meaning non-toxic ammunition must now be used in or within 100 metres of wetlands across 30 different countries. This is a game-changer, and campaigners say it will save a million waterbirds a year dying from lead poisoning. I'm meeting up with Dolphin Nicholas now back at base to squeeze into a pair of neoprene waders so I can join her for some field work in a nearby lagoon. With all this water running through its veins, this is a landscape designed for fish. Bonjour, Delphine. <laughs> How are you? How are you? You okay? Yes. Nice to see you. you. Okay. I think it must be this one because yeah. it's a big fit. <laughs> I do have big feet. Yeah. Will you be able to just explain quickly where we are, what we're doing, and what we'll hope to see? Yes. Here we are uh, next to the Vacares Lagoon. 
and uh, we are going to proceed uh, to uh, a scientific survey. Uh, so we have uh, several nets in the in the vacares in the pond, and um, we will uh, go to see what we have in these nets. So the aim is to uh, to look if we have glass eel, so the juvenile of uh, the European eel. Uh, it is a long travel from the sea, and so uh, they had uh, when they arrived uh, just uh, from the sea, they are totally transparent. But the fact uh, they have traveled again several kilometers to arrive here, uh, they had already times to get pigmented. Okay, so, so that's what recording the, the pigmentation allows you to do, is see yeah. how fast it has traveled from the sea to here. Yeah, and if it is uh, totally uh, pigmented, it means that uh, it is a glacial which is in the system since uh, a while. Ah, okay, okay. okay. The nets here are unbaited and are basically long, thin tunnels that allow small aquatic life to drift into. They're checked daily, and the contents are poured into a small white tray to see what's around. This lagoon is currently saltier than the sea, mainly due to the lack of rainfall over recent years. So whilst the diversity of species may not be huge, it's abundant with salt-tolerant species that take advantage of the niche. Okay, so first relève. Oh, wow, lots of shrimps. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. It's uh, the same family of the hippocamp. The seahorse? Seahorse, yes. So is it a pipe fish? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, I think yes. I think so. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Basically a, a straight seahorse. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. The first two nets draw in four or five species of shrimps, two species of goby, and a huge amount of pipefish. But it's down to the last net to see if we capture the glass eels we're looking for. Ah, 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 glass eel! Yay! <laughs> Yuppie! This really thin yeah, one. Yeah, yes. So we'll take a... Uh, and you can see uh, it is uh, already quite pigmented. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's the end of the recruitment period for the eels so we only capture another seven from the last net. They'll be taken back to the lab for measurements and to record their level of pigmentation before being returned to the lagoon. Combining this date with a study for eels next to the sea, it allows the team to understand the connectivity of habitats and how long it takes them to reach their destination. The Camargue is a dreamy place for a fish researcher to work. There are so many elements that combine to make it rich in life beneath the surface. As I've found out though, most of Delphine's work is on the fascinatingly weird European eel. The European eel is an emblematic uh, species of Mediterranean lagoons. Until the 70s, it was considered as a pest because uh, it was very, very dense. But since then, it has drastically declined and it's considered known as critically endangered of extinction. And its decline has resulted from a multitude of reasons. European eels are migratory, and the entire population breeds in one location, the Sargasso Sea. The larvae then drift towards Europe on a 300-day, 6,000-kilometre migration, metamorphosizing at the coast into glass eels, their next life stage. After reaching their continental habitat, they metamorphose again into elvers, many of which migrate upstream. I've actually been swimming in Scottish rivers back home and seen these strange beings on their migration. Unlike salmon, which dramatically leap up waterfalls, 
These elvers leave the safety of the water to wriggle up vertical rock faces to get around these natural barriers. I can tell you now, my jaw was to the floor at the time, mesmerised and admittedly confused as to what I was watching. They actually took my mind off the bitingly cold water for a few moments. The Scottish Highlands are a wee bit chillier than the Camargue. And uh, so that's why uh, in Mediterranean we have a shorter uh, growth period. Uh, it will be between two and three years for male and five to six years for females. But in the north of Europe, it, uh, it, it will be a minimum of 20 years to produce a female. Since the um, 70s, uh, the continental habitats of the European hill have degraded a lot, both in terms of uh, quality and surface, uh, mostly due to contamination, also uh, obstacle construction. Obstacles like large dams hinder these incredible fish, as well as parasites, predation, fishing pressure and pollution. It's safe to say they're up against it. Delphin and her team are doing some pretty cool research tagging and tracking the eels. This not only allows them to learn about the species itself, but to record results for the interconnectivity of habitats for fish across the Camargue. Telemetric survey enables to study the movement of fish within their own environment. So the principle is to tag a fish uh, with a mark having a unique number that will be registered uh, by listening station. And this uh, listening station must be located at key points, uh, so inside the aquatic habitat, so that you will be able to know uh, if uh, the individual uh, came through. So such survey uh, will enable, for instance, to study the dynamic of the eel outmigration so you can study when does it occur, if it's uh, very punctual uh, in, during time or if it lasts over several months. We, we can try uh, to see if we can predict it from uh, specific environmental signals and uh, this could help to uh, implement some uh, management action. This capture, mark, recapture survey of European eels has been going on since 2001. Over 20 years of data being utilised to assist fish migration through the network of embankments on the Camargue. This is research to restoration and a fine example of sound science being the foundation of work on the ground. And if you improve connectivity for eels, you improve it for other fish species too. Uh, coastal habitats such as uh, estuaries, lagoons or marshes are essential habitats for many migratory uh, fish species since they play a nursery role for the juvenile stage. And uh, these habitats, uh, so they are appropriate for the survival and the growth of uh, numerous young individuals that will join the reproducer stroke at sea. By improving the quantity and quality of wetlands and the overall connection to the sea, commercial fish species for the Mediterranean such as common sole, sea bass and sea bream will all improve in numbers too. Of course, this shouldn't be just for the purpose of fishing, but I think we'll find the large-scale restoration of nature moves a lot quicker if we can showcase the economic opportunities too. Invest in nature and we all benefit. With climate change knocking at the door, part of Delphin's research has been looking at extreme weather events on fish communities in Slovenia. And in the Camargue, warmer temperatures and less rainfall can cause stressful conditions for fish in poorly connected habitats. Especially here in Camargue, and fish can get trapped in uh, unfavorable habitats. Thus, again, improving connectivity with upstream river system and the sea is crucial to enable fish to join a more oxygenated, shaded and or deeper refuge area, depending on the salinity. Uh. 
Research works best when shared. Tour de Valla is one of several partners, including the Migratory Mediterranean Association and French Biodiversity Agency, working on the European Eel Conservation Plan. The more our collective knowledge improves on threatened species, the better our management actions will be. When I ask Delphine her hopes for the future, she tells me she's going to answer with her dream scenario. Against all these challenges, we definitely need dreamers on the team fighting back for nature. Uh, so success. Uh, I mean, I took it like a, a dreaming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. I like it. <laughs> so uh, in my dream, <laughs> um, the direct connection to the Run River have been restored to ensure a more regular and abundant quantity of freshwater inputs inside the delta of Camargue. Furthermore, the whole agricultural producer have all turned to organic practices, which ensure a good quality of the freshwater inputs. Open connection to the sea or no, naturally functioning and enables the circulation of the fish fauna. The European eel is now in great abundance and it can easily circulate over the world delta, grow and accumulate plenty of good quality energy. So it has now a good probability to reach uh, back its reproduction sites on the other side of the Atlantic Oceans and to successfully reproduce. And even fishermen now can exploit it in a sustainable way with good conscience. For Delphin's dream to become reality, we all have a role to play. Not just those on the doorstep of the Camargue. The habitats here are under stress, and whilst the people on the ground can affect physical changes to the best of their ability, it won't be effective unless we all act to limit global warming. It's a huge battle, but I genuinely believe it's achievable if we work together on a global stage. I'm getting back on dry land now to join Mark Thibault, project leader for wetland restoration here. He's keen to show me the former salt works area, where after many years of manipulation, the water flows are being returned to a more natural state. Mark, Hello. bonjour. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you? That's the bird, how are you? I, 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 I passed my car. So you spend the night here? Yes. To the sound of the flamingos. Nice. It was very nice. So that was good for our sound recordings. Yeah, 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 it was. I went out at like uh, 11, 11 p.m. last night and they were all quite close. Okay. So it was nice to get that sound. Maybe uh, you got recordings of shorebirds as well? Yeah, I think so. A few. Or yeah. Red chinks, or? There's, there's lots of calls I don't recognize, which is quite exciting. Okay. <laughs> and so, some every now and again that I do, like red shank and and yeah, Dunlin and, and things like that. But yeah, there's quite a few that I, I think, oh, what's that? And then I can't see anything because of the reeds, but. It's hard not to get distracted by <laughs> 30 or so yeah. flamingos all. What, what is nice is when you have very cloudy condition like today, it's actually when the color of the flamingo has the brightest. Yes, I can imagine that. Whereas if we had a strong sun, they, they will look uh, a lot more whitish yeah. and, and dull. Yeah. But uh, when it's cloudy like, like today, it's, they're really brilliant. Yeah, they look amazing. And they're, they're, now is the time of the year when they start displaying. Mm. To be honest, I thought I was leaving grey skies and high winds behind me in Scotland, especially when visiting the south of France. But if it makes the flamingos look even more glamorous, then I guess I can forgive the lack of sunshine on that front. The weather plays an important role here across the seasons, opening up ecological niches in times of high and low water. When you have low pressure events, uh, the sea flows into the lagoons, whereas during uh, high pressure periods, 
or when there is a strong northerly wind, uh, the water of the lagoon will flow out to the sea. And um, this water circulation is a um, very uh, important aspect of the hydrological functioning of, the, of, this, of these coastal wetlands. Another aspect is the um, importance of the dry and the wet season, because here the Mediterranean climate is, is very dry. So in summer, when we have high pressure system and we have strong evaporation, the water level in the coastal lagoons will, will, will reduce a bit. And uh, as we have exposed areas of mud, uh, this, this period uh, when, when the ground is not flooded is, is, is critical as um, it's when the salt marsh vegetation here in the Mediterranean, uh, the seeds will germinate and the vegetation will grow. Salaconia, otherwise known as glasswort or marsh samphire, depending on where you're from, makes up a large part of the salt marsh here. Unsurprisingly, this is a salt-tolerant plant, halophytic if you'd like the posh version. It's edible, but again, unsurprisingly, rather salty in taste. Apparently it goes well as a side dish to fish, although I hear to some it's also known as chicken toe, due to the shape of its stems, which admittedly makes it slightly less appealing. More importantly than its taste, it makes for important breeding grounds for small songbirds. Snazzy little things like spectacled warbler, threatened across most of France, are doing well here. That's down to the returning habitats. But overall, Salaconia scrub is a declining feature of coastal wetlands, mainly through urban encroachment, and here on the Camargue, by saltworks changing the hydrology of their natural habitat. Massive construction works were completed here in the 1950s onwards. Each of the lagoons were surrounded by dikes, and also uh, dikes were built around the, around the coast. So in total, we have several dozen kilometers of dikes which were built for, for the purpose of salt production. And also several pumping stations were set up for the water circulation up to 15 years ago. This used to be the largest salt work in Europe, which was covering 12,000 hectares. During several decades, the wetlands had a very artificial functioning aimed at producing uh, salt uh, in uh, industrial quantities. For example, the, the ponds would be filled with brine during spring and summer, and, and these ponds would be drained in winter, whereas, whereas here, usually we have high water level in winter and low water level in summer. So the hydrology was completely transformed. Now, I'm not an expert in salt marsh ecology, but even I can figure out that if the seasonal hydrology of a natural system is completely flipped on its head, it's not going to be good for nature. The largest producer on the Camargue is said to supply half a million tonnes of salt a year. This isn't just so you can romantically sprinkle crystals of French sea salt on your roast potatoes. It has many different uses in the chemical and pharmaceutical industries, from the cooking of wood chips in the paper industry to the gritting of icy roads in winter. A change of ownership, though, has meant part of the former saltworks is now under restoration. So here in the former saltworks, uh, what's important is that uh, what's important to know, sorry, is that um, the, the area was purchased by Conservatoire du Littoral uh, 12 years ago. Conservatoire du Littoral, uh, literally, it's a coastal agency. It's a, it's a state agency which is uh, conducting a, a policy of land purchasing in coastal areas all over France. Basically, the project is to um, 
uh, transform this artificial salt works into a more natural uh, Mediterranean coastal wetlands. Oh, this kind of thing fills me with hope. Actual governments taking the action they need for the benefit of nature and people. And this isn't a new thing for France. The Conservatoire du Littoral was set up in 1975 to preserve and restore a significant part of coastal natural spaces and to make them accessible to all. This feels like part of Delphin's dream scenario, except it's actually happening. Can we all have a Conservatoire du Littoral, please? The State Department signs three to four hundred deeds a year to bring plots into public ownership, with the aim of creating a larger network of a thousand natural sites in good condition, making up 320,000 hectares by 2050. For example, just here, we have an area 12 years ago was completely devoid of vegetation because in the past it used to be an area where uh, brine, so it's water with very high concentration of, of salt, was, was brought there. So all the vegetation of, of the salt marshes had disappeared. And simply by restoring a natural hydrology with alternating flooding in winter and prolonged uh, drought in, in summer, and by circulating fresh water in winter to export part of the salt that is stored in the sediments. The vegetation is, is recolonizing the, this area actually quite fast, and, and there is a very impressive uh, landscape change. The embankment of the Rhone River was achieved in the 19th century, but there is almost no uh, natural water flowing from the Rhone River to the Delta anymore. And another consequence is that there is um, very little uh, sediment input from, from the river as compared to the past when the Camargue was a very wild delta and there were occasionally uh, massive uh, flooding events and also the, um, the Rhone River would uh, change its course uh, up to the sea quite regularly. So you have to imagine that in the past this delta was a uh, extremely dynamic ecosystem, which is not the case anymore today because of the embankments. On the one hand, the restoration of natural habitats of the Camargue seems incredibly complex to achieve. The richness of the delta is made up from subtle shifts in salinity between fresh and seawater, controlled by river, tide, wind and wave, to build an intricate mosaic of patchwork habitats, dynamically rotating as these forces ebb and flow across the seasons. On the other hand, one simple action, above all else, will return the abundance and diversity of life that Camargue can muster. Water flow. So for the coastal lagoons habitat, the restoration process is a, a bit more complex and takes a lot more time because to have coastal lagoons with a natural hydrological functioning, these coastal lagoons should be connected to the sea and they also should be connected to the surrounding watershed. So one first aspect is the connection to the sea because this connection were lost during all the time this area was used for salt production because there were some dikes and uh, of course some, the, the seawater was brought into the lagoons with pumping but uh, there was no natural flow anymore so we wanted to restore this natural flow as much as possible and uh, actually um, to achieve this um, what's quite amazing is that we haven't done anything because uh, it is the Mediterranean Sea that has made the job. Give nature half a chance and she'll reclaim. We'll find it's a lot cheaper too. During several sea flood events, the dikes built along the coast were breached and new channels dug out by the currents. These coastal lagoons now have a newfound connection to the sea and migratory fish have been able to recolonize them, 
using their shallow waters as protection from larger predators of the deep. This, all this is, is working well, and even the local fishermen are impressed by the quantities of fish that are to be found in the lagoons, which are connected to the sea. It's not just the fishermen who are seemingly impressed by the increased numbers of fish. As we walk along the side of the lagoon, Mark spots one of the Camargue's star species. You see this girl with a pinkish color? Yes. It's a slender-built girl. Ah, that's the one. Yeah, okay. That's the first time I've seen. It's the same size as black that girl, but Mm. it's uh, no no black on the head, and and it it has nice pinkish color. That's, uh, it's really, uh, wow, it's... uh, Oh, really pink, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Now, for any ghoul fans out there, I apologise in advance. I must admit, I don't normally get excited by them. I said it, and I'm sorry. But I do make an exception for this slender-billed gull. It is a triumph of gull aesthetics. Crimson red legs with a beak to match, a pastel pink waistcoat, and an elongated head that blends perfectly from forehead to bill. It looks like it might have been designed by engineers for perfect gull aerodynamics. And here in the Camargue is the most important place in France for them to breed. Away from the power of the sea, lagoons require a bit more input to help things along. But then when we go further inland, the restoration of the coastal lagoons is not as um, successful as we would like. It's mainly because we have been facing here in south of France several um, dry events in, in the last few years. We have very dry conditions. We are lacking rainfall actually. And the, the balance between fresh water and salt water in, the, in, in some of the coastal lagoons which are very far from the sea is not very satisfying. In summer sometimes we have, we have too much salt concentration and, and it's not good for the fish. The next step is to bring uh, fresh water from the Rhone River to the coastal lagoons to have a better balance between salt water and fresh water. But it will be a long process because today the Rhone River is several kilometers away from here. And you have to go through private properties. This is a big challenge. Not because local people don't want to see restored ecosystems, but because the debate here is between rewilding versus disaster risk management. It's between allowing water free reign to shape the unique habitats once again and the possibility of looking out the window and seeing floods coming towards your door. Just 30 kilometres up the Rhone River is the city of Arles and its 50,000 inhabitants. Over the next few decades, sea level rise is a very real threat. The people of Arles live at just 10 metres above sea level. If I lived there, I'd be nervous too. Restored ecosystems and improved interconnectivity of habitats can work towards mitigating the effects of climate change locally, but will also contribute to limiting global warming overall. Coastal wetlands that function naturally have the ability to filter pollutants from the water, store significant amounts of atmospheric carbon, and to protect communities from flooding and storm surges. They're a vital element in reversing biodiversity loss and delivering on climate solutions, but they need space to be effective. If we want resilient ecosystems, it's essential to have large areas which are restored. It's uh, essential to have areas where um, some, some habitats can relocate. Otherwise, if the coastal areas are too small, if, if the natural habitats are too small, in the face of uh, sea level rise, the coastal habitats will not be able to, to shift uh, inland. I'm not hiding from you that the decades to come will be quite difficult uh, overall with global warming. If it weren't for the nearby settlements that needed flood protection, there's a possibility the intricate patchwork of lagoons, marshes and wetlands would be able to adapt to rising sea levels and extreme weather events, 
by moving around and travelling further inland. But the people in the city of Arles can't be blamed for living where they do. This is not their fault. This has been an important settlement for almost 3,000 years. I can't actually tell which way this one will go. It feels weird leaving with a sense of worry rather than hope. I love the enthusiasm when Delphin talks about improving the habitats for the eels and the smile on Arnard's face when he told me about safeguarding the future for the flamingos. But what will also stick in my mind is the genuine concern on Mark's face when he talks about the threat of sea level rise. If anything, this perfectly epitomises the need for large-scale rewilding and, of course, the decarbonisation of society at large. The future of Tordevala and the wider Camargue ecosystem unfortunately doesn't lie solely in the hands of those that would love it most to see it stand the test of time. It's down to all of us. If we're to stabilise the incoming threats of climate change, to secure a healthy planet for years to come, we must restore nature at a scale and pace never seen before. It's down to big rewilding landscapes, to governments across the world, and every single one of us through the choices we make in our everyday lives. We can do this, but only if we act now and act together. Do it for the flamingos and the eels, the slender-billed gulls and the salaconia scrub, but do it for the marks and delphins and the Arnards and Luke Hoffmans, for those that live at sea level and those that don't. I didn't mean for the Tour de Valor episode to become a kick up the proverbial butt to get on with rewilding, but here we are. Let's get on with it. I hope you enjoyed episode four of the Rewild podcast, a fascinating insight into the French Camargue and the vital work going on by Tour de Valor. It was fantastic to join Delphine for some field work splashing around the coastal lagoon, and I even managed to see a half-metre-long European eel close to one of the nets. They truly are weird and wonderful. Thanks to Mark and Arnard for sharing their insights too. The music was by Andrew O'Donnell of Beluga Lagoon, and the artwork was created by Gemma Shooter. Tour de Valla is a member of the European Rewilding Network, a collection of groundbreaking initiatives across the continent, brought together by Rewilding Europe as part of a broader rewilding movement. This is an organisation making rewilding happen through positive action on the ground. Do join us next time as we explore the Greater Coa Valley in Portugal. Catch you next time.